and if you're you don't if you have a, don't have a Bible, there's a Bible and rack in front of you. The page number is in the bulletin. Um, last week we started talking about suffering. We talked about the reality of suffering, um, and and it's a very raw thing because suffering is a hard thing for us to comprehend. What what it means to suffer, what it means to go through life. Um, understanding and knowing that there are going to be difficult times. And just because you are a Christian does not mean that you're not going to have difficult times. And you're not going to have pain. And you're not going to have loss. Um, because if that were true, then that would make Jesus a hypocrite because Jesus suffered pain and loss. Um, and it's extraordinary to think that, that Jesus' own physical suffering was magnified by his spiritual suffering. Um, I mean, because of his, think about it, his best friends abandoned him. The people he had spent his life with um, abandoned him. And one of those people was Peter. And and Peter really um, came to understand, I think, both through Christ and through his own personal life, he came to understand the meaning of suffering. And um, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we already read the text uh, earlier this morning, First Peter chapter 4, and we, we want to look at um, just a couple of lines beginning in verse 7. The Apostle Peter says, look, suffering is just part of life. We just have to brace ourselves with that. And then last week we ended with the line at the beginning of verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now I'm going to tell you something about the Greek that underlies this line. In Greek this means the end of all things is at hand. There's nothing deep or profound about this. The Apostle Peter believed in what we call eschatological imminence. That's a really big term for the end of all things is at hand. The Apostles believed that the world was so bad and and because Messiah had come, the day of the Lord was coming fast approaching. Peter preaches this in the book of Acts. The very first sermon we have from Peter of preaching is he says, look, this is the day. This is the moment that God had for, that God had prophesied. This is the end. And they lived their whole lives going, this is the end. This is the end. And 2,000 years later, um, I think we've kind of lost that, that sense of imminence. We kind of we make a, uh, uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that eventually Jesus will come back one day, and you know if I say Christ is coming, if I work into one of my you know southern preacher fervors where I start rapid firing things, and I get to and he's coming back again, almost inevitably somebody goes Amen. You know, um, when I was a kid, we had told this story. Did I ever get, tell you guys the story about Wally? I've never told this story. Oh, this is a good one. All right. So, so uh, I was a kid. There were these two older ladies, a, a mother and daughter. And the, the daughter was in her 60s. She took care of her mom. And um, uh, the, the mom, Dottie, was married to Leroy, who was possibly the coolest dude that has ever walked the face of the earth. I just remember as a kid, this guy was just righteous. I mean, he was cool. And his number one skill, what extraordinary skill that he had, was that he could take apart and reassemble a snapper lawnmower like in like 45 minutes. You remember Snapper Lawnmowers, the one with the handlebars? You know, the one that Forrest Gump rides? That was how we mowed our church property. Anyway, he passed away, and, um, and Wally and Dot, Wally would, would take care of, of her mom, Dot, um, Dorothy, 
um, and uh, and they lived in this little um, clapboard house, and 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 Leroy had been a World War II vet, and and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, but Wally just could not stay awake during church services. She just there was something about either staying up late or whatever she would sleep. But my dad, who was, used to be a very, very bombastic preacher, would work himself into these fervors, and he would get to a point, and he would pause, you know, and what a hum! And inevitably, Wally would wake up and say, Amen! <laughs> and it did not matter what my dad was doing. He could be telling a story. And he would be working his way into a fervor, telling about football. I was a 150-pound nose tackle. I was getting sent out. Amen. And so it was just one of those great things. Anyway, so people, Christian church people say amen sometimes at the drop of a hat. Um, uh, sometimes they have to be told. You ever been in a church service where they're like, can I get an amen? An amen. Get an amen. And if you don't amen loud enough, they tell you to do it again. You, know, you ever been in one of those? Um, you gotta, Jed knows what I'm talking about. You know, this happens a lot in charismatic Pentecostal circles. There's a lot of, especially in Florida. Um, in Georgia, they throw napkins. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, but the, the, as, we're, as we're looking at this, he's, the reality is that we, even though we might consent to the second coming of Christ, and we might say, yeah, the kingdom is at hand, and, you know, uh, you know, we even pray the prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We pray those things. But over time, because it's been so long, I mean, none of us can even remember, you know, I mean, we, we, we have, I mean, Steve has trouble remembering June, but, but, the, uh, but we, we don't look back at those days and say, you know, we remember when the apostles were on the earth. I mean, nobody, nobody does that. And over time, we kind of develop this kind of, um, uh, uh, we kind of develop this idea of it's just kind of a thing that's way out there. And I think this is fed into then kind of a culture of trying to revive the, the eschatological imminence. And so there's all these prophecy people. You know, when I was growing up, it was 88 reasons Jesus was coming back in 1988. And, and 1991 was the year of the Lord. And 1995, so send your money in. And, you know, buy my book. And oil and Armageddon. And all of these things that have happened. And, and, and fads come and go. These eschatological fads come and go. But, and, and I think to a certain extent that kind of burns us all out and we just stop thinking about it. But I think one of the things that drove the Apostle Peter was his belief. His belief that it was any minute now. Any minute now Christ is coming back. And, and we've got things to do. We've got a life to live. We, we've got to focus on that. Now when we say, we, I've got things to do in this context, it's usually, I can't die yet. I've got things to do. But for Peter, it was, Christ is coming back. We've got things to do to prepare. We've got things to do. And so the Apostle Peter, going through his life of suffering and all these things, he comes to this point, he says, the end of all things is at hand. He says, he says and so we've got things to do. Look at the things that he says we have to do. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Freak out, sell everything you have, climb on top of a house, dress in a white robe, put on tennis shoes, wait for Halley Bop Comet to come by, right? And pick you up. Um, no. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. He says this, for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Where's the freak out? Where's the, we've got to reach the whole world because any day now, Jesus, it's none of the eschatological fervor. The eschatological means end times. That's what that means. Um, it's none of this end time fervor that we see in all these prophetic movements and all of this stuff. What does he say? What is he saying there? What is he saying there? I want to just consider just a few minutes that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this world is going to end. We believe that Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign. Help us as we look at the words of Peter, who also believed this, to see what we should be doing to prepare the way. Be excellent to one another. Party on, dude. Now, how many of you know what that reference is? All right, there are three of us. That is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and if you haven't seen it, you should. All right? Um, One of the greatest movies to ever come out of the 1980s, featuring George Carlin as a time traveler in a phone booth. Need I say more? Um, uh, But... uh, this has been kind of the argument from everybody. You know, it's always been, well, be kind to one another. Be nice. This is the answer to all things. And yet the Apostle Peter, this is kind of what he says. He says, now, keep in mind, he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. And he says this, in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, what do those two things mean? self-controlled and sober-minded what do they mean what are the and the best way to figure out what a word means is to come up with the opposite what is the opposite of self-controlled out of control right it's not this college level question right there graduate student right Uh, (laughs) right Um, out of control and what's the opposite of sober-minded drunk what frivolous um, it, disjointed, uh, not not focused, you know, um, d- worrying about all of the wrong things, focused on all of the wrong things. So he says to us, he says, you need to have some self-control, right, which means not be out of control. And he says, you need to be sober-minded, be not frivolous, not be not be led away by every little whim but rather focused on this. And this is what the word sober means. And if you've, um, you've ever seen somebody that's intoxicated, you know the opposite of sober is uh, drunkenness means just out of control, frivolous, and made a mess. Uh, I remember watching a guy one time try to go down a pair of stairs who was very, very obviously his blood alcohol level was above the legal limit. There was no doubt about it. Um, and he was trying to go down a set of stairs to a bar, mind you, all right, um, with a, he had 
uh, two glasses. I don't know why he had them, but he had two glasses, one inside the other. You know how glasses don't really stack real well? They kind of tip back and forth. And this guy was literally doing this as he's going down the stairs. And, and I sat there, and I, I feel bad about this. I should have helped the guy. But let's be honest. This was like a NASCAR race. I was waiting for the crash. All right. I mean, I was watching this guy going, is he going to, and he managed to get down the stairs. Well, why? Because his, his, his mind being intoxicated, it, it, it couldn't do the simple thing of keeping your balance, keeping balance. And a sober-minded person is somebody who, who is focused on the priorities, on the right things self-controlled and sober-minded so that you're um, for the sake of your prayers why so that we pray for the right things i mean this is not this is not complicated this is not deep theology he says the end of all things is at hand so make sure you can focus and you're in control so you're praying for the right things our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done right praying for the right things and he says, in order to be able to pray for the right things, you've got to have a clear mind, you've got to have self-control to see what's going on. And sometimes we crowd our world and our minds and our hearts and all we can see are all of the frivolous things and all of the outside things. And we don't know what to pray for. I can be honest. I, I, I have one, I mean, I pray for all you guys, don't get me wrong, so I'm not playing favorites or anything, but I have this one family Every year there seems to be one family I pray for uh, constantly that they will just have one year without a problem. Uh, a couple years ago it was the Joneses because they just had one crisis, one family loss after another for, for about 18 months. It was just constant. And, and I've got to be honest, this past year it's been Steve and Heidi because, I mean, they came to our church and their house burned down and it, it hasn't really... Business hasn't picked up, you know. I mean, they're still dealing with their daughter has had some serious medical problems, and now his her husband has had some issues, and it's just this constant thing. And I just want I want Steve and Heidi to just have six months with no crisis. That's that's what I pray for Steve and Heidi, you know. Uh, every once in a while, I just pray for a family. I mean, there there have been times I've prayed for people in our congregation, and I've prayed just for them to be able to get through three months where every month they were able to pay every bill take care of every expense, and not have to worry about it. You say, why would you pray for that? Because I see what distracts people. I want them to be able to be self-controlled, and I want them to have a, a, a clear mind, a sober mind, so that they can pray for one another. And I pray for people to be in that state. You ever just prayed for somebody? I just pray that so-and-so has a good day. Sometimes I pray for people, I pray for people, and this is not, oh, you got to pray like me. I'm just telling you that, that this is what my prayer life is like. Sometimes I get up in the morning and I go, I, I say to myself things like this, Lord, I just pray that, I pray that Linda can get through her day. It just, Linda pops into my mind. You go, well, you don't know specifically what to pray for. Well, if you know Linda, there's always something. But, but, but we just we just say, I mean, do you ever do you ever take the time to just be thinking about your brothers and sisters and praying for them? And it doesn't have to be anything deep or or or, or you know, I I sometimes it's just something very simple. I just I, I pray so and so can get back and forth to work safely. 
You know, they're, they're just these little things. And in order to do that, guess what? In order to be able to pray for people that way, you have to know those people. And in order to know those people, you've got to invest your time into them. And, and Peter knows this, by the way. Look at the way he continues. He says, so be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What's he mean, love covers a multitude of sins? It means that when you love somebody, you're willing to put up with an awful lot. That's what it means. That's all it means. When you love somebody like Jesus loves them, you're willing to put up with things that you wouldn't put up with if you loved them the way that you love people. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there are things that irritate us, and if we're not loving people earnestly in the love of Christ, it's very easy for those irritations to become annoyances, and those annoyances to become divisions, and those divisions to become hatred, and that hatred to become bitterness, and where we spoil the soul and the fabric of our relationships with others because we love the way we want to love instead of loving the way Christ loves. Right? Wow. Yeah. We all do that, right? I mean, don't we all do that? I mean, husbands and wives, don't you catch yourself every once in a while loving your spouse the way that you think you should love them instead of the way that Christ calls you to love them? And you have to correct course and go, you know, I, I you know, that that wasn't right, you know? And sometimes we love our kids. We love an idealized version of our kids instead of who they really are, right? And we have to correct course and say, no, I'm going to love the way Christ loves. I'm going to love. I'm going to devote myself to this person, right? So above all, loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. And then he says, and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, what's grumbling? And, and showing hospitality is, is not necessarily opening our homes, although I think from time to time we should just go ahead and be able to do that, just open our homes. I'm so thankful for those that have opened up their homes for the hosting of the small groups. And they just open up their homes. And they say, come in, you know, come in, take your shoes off, don't kill the cat, you know. Um, you know very, very straightforward hospitality. But there's other ways of showing hospitality. Uh, our, our openness, our, our approach to one another, the way that we do things. And uh, one of the thing, one of the catchphrases I used to use that I, I, I've stopped using and I probably should use more is when we talk about the church showing hospitality, we should always remember to never turn our back on the door. There should never be somebody that comes into our church services and manages to slip by everybody because we were too focused on ourselves and didn't notice that person. Hospitality is a characteristic of a Christian. A Christian is somebody who opens their life to other people. Because so much of the world is consumed with my life is for me and only for me. And we have extraordinary things that happen in our church that most people never know about. Just people showing hospitality and opening their lives to others and, and, and opening their homes. And, but he says, the end of all things is near, right? So show hospitality. What? Where's the tie in there? Let me tell you something in the, about the scriptures, by the way. There's a, there's, a, there's a lesson to be learned here. For all of his faults, all right, when you read the book of Genesis, Abraham's nephew Lot, he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to punish Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys probably know the story. You may not know the story, but Lot is living in Sodom, um, and God is going to punish it. And so uh, God himself, all right, um, and, and some of his angels of some kind, um, and we know it's God because he speaks directly to Abraham before this, they go into the city of Sodom, 
And the only person that opens his home to them, these strangers, these wanderers, is Lot. So there's something to be said. Showing hospitality when the end of all things is near, because if you don't know Sodom and Gomorrah, then you know, fire, brimstone, burned up, destroyed. Wife turned to a pillar of salt. Uh, it's everything that goes on with Lot. When the end of all things is near, that's exactly the time we need to be showing hospitality. Now, our world knows that things are bad. People around us know that the world is bad. You know how I know? Just look at the popularity of stupid zombie shows. All right? Zombies are a dumb idea. I don't care. You guys can watch them and enjoy the show all you want. But what is a zombie movie, zombie show about? It's about fear. Our world loves fear. We're afraid of zombies, which, by the way, if you're interested, just letting you know, there is only one presidential candidate who has a zombie infestation preparedness plan. His name is uh, Vermin Love Supreme. And he is a Democratic candidate, and I'm not making it up. Um, you can meet him at the polling places. He wears a shoe on his head, um, a boot. Yes, it's a big boot. Um, he is he's on the Democratic ballot every election. He's, um, but if you're really concerned about walking the you know walk of the dead, vote for Vermin Love Supreme. Um, but our world is motivated by fear, and what does fear do to us? It makes us close ourselves in. How many locks do you have on the door of your house? How many people do you know that carry concealed weapons because they're terrified somebody might come and kill them, hurt them? How much of our world is described by fear? How many stinking airbags does a car need? My car has 14 airbags. I'm not going to die of asphyxiation. I'm going to be squeezed in all the balloons. I mean, when I was a kid, we rattled around on the back bench seat of the car and all survived. You know, there were no seatbelts. My, my sister, we owned a VW Bug. You know how many seatbelts there are in the back seat of a VW Bug? None. My little sister sat on the ledge over the engine in a VW Bug. We all survived. Oh, carbon monoxide poisoning, but okay. All right. But the reality is, we, we live in a world that is consumed with fear, and we're so afraid of our fear that we won't even admit that we live in a world of fear. Oh, free-range parenting and helicopter parenting. You know when I, I, what we called free-range parenting when I was a kid? Parenting. You went out, you got hurt, you came to mom and said, I got hurt. Mom looked at you and went, you're hurt. Tough luck. I'll fix your boo-boo. Don't do that again. Okay, I won't. That was how I grew up as a kid. Now we have parents, who, oh honey, don't go up that second step. It's kind of high. Just stay there. I'll pick you up and put you on the slide. Well, we had slides that you, you broke the speed of sound as you were coming down the slide when I was a kid. Don't exist anymore. They're not even metal anymore. Now they're plastic. That was half the fun of a slide was leaving skin behind. We're so terrified of the world. And he says, no, no, show hospitality. Don't close yourselves up. Open yourselves up. Don't close yourselves off. Open yourselves up. He says, the end of time is near. End of all things. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God has equipped you 
to care for someone. You say, I, I, don't have the, I don't have the gifts. Look what he says. He says, whoever speaks, speak as the oracle of God. And he doesn't say, and if you can't speak, then serve. These are set on even level. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. How do I, how do I practice hospitality in a world consumed with fear? How do I love people earnestly in a world consumed with lust and hatred and, and disgust, political correctness, all that? How do I do all of these things? He says, well, some of you will do it by speaking. When you speak, speak as the oracle of God. Make sure that what you say aligns with the scriptures. Make sure that what you will say aligns with the character of the God you claim to serve. He says, but some of you will serve. Some of you will simply see a need and meet a need. And neither of the two is superior to the other. If someone can speak well, that's great. But if somebody can serve well, that's just as good. You say, well, I'll never, be a, a real, uh, I'll never be a real servant of Christ until I can stand up and, and give a lesson at the ladies' ministry. I've been desperately trying to get into the ladies' ministry. They won't let me. You know, I, well, oh, look at so-and-so. They're so spiritual. They can speak and they can teach. And isn't that extraordinary? All I can do is, is take care of these little ones. All, all I can do is clean up messes. All I can do is cook. All I can do is take care of my neighbors. And, and that's kind of a second-rate Christian thing. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is a beautiful thing that the world needs because the end of all things is at hand. And look at what he says. In order that, in everything. Remember, he just said all things are coming to an end. What is that end? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong dominion, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter loves this line so much, he says amen. He's still got more to write on the letter, but he, he wants us to know what this is going on. He says, look, he says, the whole, the whole attitude, we're going through a world that is broken and it's fractured and there's suffering and there's sin and there's difficulty. He said, but here's what you need to do as, as we are living in the end. And, and I believe we're living in the end. I believe that Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were living in the end. We're living in the end. It doesn't matter that the end is 2,000, 3,000 years long. It's still the end. Eventually we're coming to a point of an end and eventually Christ will return and eventually he will set up his kingdom. But in the meantime, as we're waiting for him to show up, we can live the kingdom now. His grace is active in us now. And, and we can live, we can pray, we can serve, we can love, we can practice hospitality. Because in a world consumed with fear and death and pain and destruction and not being happy with who you are and trying to become someone else, we are the body of Christ. And yes, we will suffer, but how much greater the message of our love that we manifest it as we suffer. Because what, does ha- what happens 
so often in human culture, human mind, when we start to get into pain and difficulty. And we have all done this. Things start to hurt, and we, not even consciously, we kind of start to curl in, don't we? We kind of start to think about only me. You know, we kind of start to feel, well, uh, I, I could help other people, but I mean, it takes so much for me to just do what I'm doing right now. And you say, uh, I mean, maybe you're already in that situation. You say, how do I get out of that situation? Well, listen to last week's sermon. Um, and if nothing else, get the idea that everything that we do as we suffer and as we, we face trial, we have to do it a little bit at a time. Three inches at a time. We unfold ourselves a little bit at a time. We open our hearts a little bit at a time. Um, I've told the story before, but when I was 13, my best friend committed suicide. Uh, I went through a long period of time where I did not have friends because I was afraid. Um, and, and I admit to this to you, I, I was afraid of having friends because I'm afraid of losing friends. I still am. Uh, I still live with that fear. One of the reasons we didn't have a dog for the longest time, and it took months for me to actually be able to say this to my wife and my daughter, the reason we did not have a dog is because when I lost my last dog, uh, who my mom had killed and didn't tell me for years, um, I, I was so emotionally invested in that dog, I was terrified of bringing another animal into my life that I would, I would have to eventually say goodbye to. And that, that was terrifying for me. I, I didn't like that idea. I have a very hard time um, with the idea that one day, and, and this is something I've realized as I've gotten older and as I've gone through ministry, I have a very hard time with one day. I'm, I may have to preach your funeral. Because you're my friends. You're my family. I love you. And as I open my heart and my, and my thoughts and my mind and my hospitality and my home to people, there is, there is something about me, personally, that I, I don't want to do that. I want to stay locked down. I want to be my, I, I want it just me and myself and Jesus, and that's all that matters, you know. But we live at the end. And we do not have the luxury of allowing the difficulty of living in this world to prevent us from living Christ in this world. We do not have the right as followers of Christ to be consumed with our own desires and our own wants. We do not have the right to hold our lives as if it is the most important life. We as followers of Christ have an obligation to break the idea and the mentality of individual importance. What I think is so important. And be the body of Christ. The Apostle Peter wants us to grasp one simple idea. The end is glorious. We think of the end of the world as destruction and boom and death and all of this stuff. I grew up in a culture that read the book of Revelation almost salivating at how the wicked were going to be punished. Isn't it great? That's not the point of the book of Revelation at all, by the way. 
The book of the Revelation, the entire point of the book of the Revelation, in case you don't know, the entire point of the book of the Revelation is, I am. God returns, Christ returns and sets up His kingdom. And it is glorious. The end is glorious. We do not need to fear the end of time. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. He will return. And we are the kingdom while we wait. Remember years ago I talked about the book of Revelation. I'll I'll end with this because I've gone way over. The book of Revelation is about the kingdom of God emerging. The new Jerusalem being born out of the midst of fallen Babylon. That's us. No matter what you go through in the coming week, no matter what you've been through in the last week, take the Apostle Peter's words to heart. It doesn't matter what the difficulties or the challenges are. And maybe take this as a, a challenge this week. To wake up every morning and read these lines. The end of all things is at hand. I will be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. I will keep loving uh, those people around me earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. I will show hospitality to people without grumbling, without complaining. The gifts that I have received I will use to serve others because I am a steward of God's grace. Whether I speak or I serve, I will recognize that in all things God will be glorified. The end is glorious. The end is glorious. Don't be afraid to say, the end of the world is near. Because that should move us as followers of Christ to acts of love that are extraordinary manifestations of a glorious God. Let's pray. A unique Sunday this morning, God. Bless us and keep us and make your face shine upon us. The pain that people in this room are going through right now is overwhelming. I know. And it's not just my situation. I know there are folks here are dealing with a lot of difficulty whether it's financial or physical or emotional or spiritual or relational or whatever it is God you know our hearts you know our minds you know the suffering you know the pain you know the struggles you know the difficulty make your face shine upon us help us to see your glory even in these difficulties Help us to turn our focus, the end of all things, to your glory. Your your weight, your presence. And may we see your kingdom come, foreshadowed in our relationships, foreshadowed in our love and our service. Pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord.
my brothers and sisters.